The scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're picking up where we left off in our study of Mark's gospel before Easter. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It's the final week of his earthly ministry. By Friday, he will be crucified, and by Sunday, he will be risen. Jesus is in the temple, and this is the third of six conflicts that you see in this section of Mark's gospel. It begins back in uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, and every one of these conflicts has to do with Jesus's authority. And Mark shows us in this passage that every, you know, this 1127 to uh, 1237, I think it is, Mark shows us in this section how Jesus is in conflict, or I should say how others are in conflict with him across the full spectrum of religious and political life in Jerusalem at that time. Everyone that was in authority had a problem with Jesus. Pharisees, Herodians are the ones that we see here in this passage this morning. Now the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians did not agree with one another on anything except Jesus is a problem. They were at opposite ends of the political spectrum. We first meet them in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, they reach across the aisle, as it were, in order to plot an effort to destroy Jesus. That's Mark chapter 3, after Jesus healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. In this passage here, they're doing it again because they both shared a common objective, and that was to discredit Jesus in the eyes of those in the crowd. They feared losing control. They feared losing political power. They wanted to hold on to it at all costs, and so they were willing to, both of them, be seen as co-opting Jesus in order to discredit him in the eyes of the people around them and maintain their own power. Now, that may sound somewhat familiar. Many Christians, and I'm using the word many, not the word all, many Christians on both the right and the left, but especially on the right, claim that Jesus is altogether on their side. They act as though if Jesus were here today, he'd be a member of their political party. Now again, I am not saying that every Christian feels that way. 
I'm sure there are plenty who know that if Jesus were here today, he wouldn't be wearing a MAGA hat. Nor would he be wearing a Build Back Better hat. Jesus is the king of creation. He is the Lord of the universe. Psalm 2 tells us that he scoffs at the rulers of this world. And I imagine he also takes issue with those who would bring him down to the level of their rulers as well. The riot and the assault on the Capitol on January 6th presented any number of repulsive images, not least of which was the image of Capitol Police being beaten and pepper sprayed. I also found some of the other images very repulsive, one of which was the flag with the Christian fish symbol on it, the ichthus. You've seen it. That, that word ichthus is the Greek word for fish. Uh, each letter of the word, the Greek word ichthus, came to stand for some aspect of who Jesus was, of his title. Jesus, Christos, Theos, Huios, Soter. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. The beginning letters of each of those words in the Greek spell ichthus. And so that symbol of the fish became a symbol by which Christians who were being persecuted for their faith in Christ would provide some kind of a sign to others who were around them that they had others with them who shared the same allegiance to King Jesus and to his kingdom above any earthly king or kingdom. Now, it's fine that Christians display that symbol. You may have one on the back of your, your car, and that's great. The problem I had with the flag that was being waved outside the Capitol as it was being stormed is that that ichthus had the name of our former president inside it. And it should bother any Christian whenever any person's name is written inside a symbol that so directly points to the kingship of Jesus Christ. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, when Pippin asks Treebeard whose side he is on in the War of the Ring, Treebeard replies, I am not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the Herodians in this passage reminds us that Jesus is not altogether on any one side. He is not altogether on your side, whether you are on the right or on the left. Wherever you stand politically, Jesus is not altogether on your side. The question is, are you altogether on his side? There's two things we need to see from this passage this morning. The first is the danger of politicizing Jesus. Because that's what the Pharisees and the Herodians were doing. The danger of politicizing Jesus. And then secondly, how to be altogether on his side. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. Would you pray that you would teach us by your spirit from this text 
Lord, help us to both marvel at the genius of Jesus as he deals with this trap that's being presented to him, how he rises above their efforts to bring him down to their level. But Lord, would you also uh, convict us where we may be intentionally or very, very much unintentionally doing the same thing? And Lord, would you help us to be people who are all together on your side by seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness out of allegiance to you, Lord Jesus, and your kingdom? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, the danger of politicizing Jesus. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 again. Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are true, and so on. So again, remember, the Pharisees and the Herodians were at opposite ends of the political spectrum. Who were the Herodians? The Herodians were Jewish people who were allied with, who supported the Herodian dynasty. And so they were very much pro-Roman. Remember, the Romans occupied uh, Jerusalem. They were very much pro-Roman, the Herodians. The Pharisees wanted to restore the kingdom of God to Israel. They were very much anti-Roman but they shared a fear of Jesus' authority. For the Herodians, the authority of Jesus would seem to undermine the Rome-induced political stability that they enjoyed. Again, Jesus was seen as someone who was a political figure, potentially leading an insurrection. That scared the Herodians. For the Pharisees, Jesus' authority undermined their religious influence over the populace. Okay, so neither were happy about the fact that Jesus, of course, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, but they were not happy about the fact that Jesus was undermining their authority, or seemed to be, on earth there in Jerusalem. So they conspired together to trap him. The word that's used for trap here in the Greek is a word that's used to describe a wild animal that is tracking its prey. It's a very strong word. They, they go on to commend Jesus for things that, that accurately describe who he is. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. So by true, they meant that his actions were guided by that which is true, right? He, uh, he doesn't do what's expedient. He sticks to that which is true. He doesn't care about anyone's opinions. Uh, it says again, he's not swayed by appearance. You're not swayed by appearances. In other words, you don't play favorites, Jesus. I mean, they're acknowledging all these things. It's all hypocrisy. But they are saying things that are true about Jesus. Finally, they say, we know that you truly, this is last uh, middle of verse uh, 14, we know that you truly teach the way of God. In other words, you teach the word of God with integrity. You don't change the message of scripture to suit the audience. Whatever the word of God says, whatever the law says, you say, Jesus. And they take that and try to trap him with it. They say this in verse, end of verse 14, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Should we pay them or should we not? They're trying to get him to come down on a side. The tax that they're referring to is a tax to Caesar. It's a, it's a Roman tax that was imposed on the citizens in Jerusalem. And they want to know, Jesus, whose side are you on? Is it lawful to pay it? Does the word of God say we must pay the tax? Or does the word of God say we must not pay the tax? If Jesus were to say the word of God says that we must not pay the tax, the Herodians could go to the Romans and say he's trying to incite an insurrection. And they would have him arrested. Jesus is silenced. If Jesus said the word of God says we must pay the tax, then the Pharisees could say to the populace, see, he's pro-Roman. He doesn't really care about the kingdom of God being restored to Israel. Either way, right? It was, you've heard the, you know, the joke, you know, let's flip a coin. Heads I win, tails you lose. That's what they were trying to present to Jesus. A heads I win, tails you lose proposition when it came to a Roman coin. When it came to paying taxes to Rome. They politicized Jesus. They didn't politicize him to discredit the other. They were both conspiring together to, to discredit Jesus. So, you know, let's, let's bring it home. How does the right in America, and to a lesser degree, but to the left as well, discredit Jesus by claiming him as their own? Now, the extreme example I gave you was that of the uh, the, the, the riot and the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. You know, as, uh, as we watched that unfold, if we, you know, heard the message of Scripture concerning Palm Sunday, for instance, you know, when Jesus entered not leading an insurrection, but rather coming as a king on a donkey, coming in peace, you couldn't help but marvel at the sad irony of people who apparently profess faith in Jesus Christ, who were waving Christian symbols, as what was perceived to be an insurrection was unfolding before our very eyes. That's an extreme example. I recognize that. I'm not stating that that is the norm. But before I get a little more nuanced, I want to borrow a line from one of my professors at Covenant Seminary. When I was there, Dr. Collins would often say, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Right? Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not talking about whether you should align yourself with any political party. I'm not. Nor am I saying, you know, that you should vote a certain way. I'm not talking about what should drive your decision at the ballot box. It's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about the way, as Christians, that we tend to talk about people who think differently. I am talking about the kinds of things that we tend to post on social media. I am talking about the way we think about right and left in America as it relates to the eternal and the, uh, universal and eternal kingdom of God. And what I'm asking you to think hard about is this. 
how your words and actions, again, this is whether you are on the right or the left, as a Christian, I'm asking you to think about how your words and actions may discredit Jesus in the eyes of people on the other side at the very point where their values actually intersect with his. Mark Sayers is a cultural commentary. He said concerning the right and the left in America that each side has some vision of the good life. That under God's common grace is in fact good. Both the right and the left have some things that they are pursuing that Jesus would find commendable. And other things that they are pursuing that Jesus would find condemnable. But both, to some degree, Sayers is saying, want the kingdom, but without the king, without Jesus. So a a very simple example of things commendable. We heard about one this morning. Jesus' concern for the life of the unborn. By and large, that characterizes those on the right. It's a value of Jesus. By and large, people on the left value concern for the environment. I'm not saying, I'm not making a hard and fast exclusive thing. I'm just saying, by and large, Jesus values the care of the environment as well. We saw this last week when we looked at uh, Colossians. All things were created by him, through him, for him. When a Christian, whether that Christian is on the right or the left, when a Christian acts as if Jesus is entirely on the side of the things that they value, They discredit Jesus in the eyes of non-Christians on the other side whenever the things that people on the other side that Jesus would find commendable um, actually intersect with the things that they would find commendable, that they are pursuing. Let me say that in another way. Whenever a Christian acts as though Jesus finds their party's platform entirely commendable and acts as if Jesus finds the other party's platform entirely condemnable, they are discrediting Jesus in the eyes of non-Christians on the other side at the very point where their values intersect with Jesus' values. It should matter very much how people think of Jesus. That's true across the board. And it's true when it comes to the way in which we talk about or post about politics in America. What are we to do about that as Christians? How do we stop implying by our manner of speech, by our social media posts, and our conduct that Jesus is altogether on our side? And the answer 
is by ensuring that we are all together on his side. So let's look secondly at that, how to be all together on the side of Jesus. Take a look at verses 15 through 17. But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, denarius was a Roman coin. It wasn't a Jewish coin. It was a Roman coin. It was worth about a day's wages at the time. On one side of the coin, there was the image of Tiberius Caesar. And it included the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So that coin represented Caesar and his authority. How does Jesus respond? It is genius. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's could be heard as legitimizing the authority of Rome, which would have made the Herodians very happy because then they could think, oh, we got you, Jesus. But render to God the things that are God's could be heard as a rejection of Roman rule. Because if the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, then what is there left to render to Caesar? So because both the Herodians and the Pharisees could have heard what they wanted to believe, or what they actually believed, neither one of them actually heard what they wanted to hear. Jesus rose above their attempts to discredit him in the eyes of other people. So how do we apply that today? We need to recognize what's happening here. Jesus is not trying to evade arrest. He's not trying to escape a gotcha moment. He knows it's his last week. He knows his hour has come. He is teaching us here. He's teaching us two things. First of all, that there are legitimate spheres of authority for both a government and for God, and it's not inherently contradictory to submit to the authority of both, even when the government is anti-God. That's the meaning of render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But second, he's teaching us that God's authority is ultimate. That's the meaning of render to God the things that are God's. The image on the coin was that of Caesar. The coin belonged to Caesar. The image of God in man, Genesis 1, means that man belongs to God. Take these two things together, what do we learn? We learn that we have a duty to government, to submit to government, no matter who's in charge. But we also learn that we have an even greater duty to God. Now, both Peter and Paul are going to build on this principle in their letters. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul writes this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, builds on this same dynamic. Peter was there, remember? Peter saw all this happen in Mark chapter 12. Peter says, Be subject to the Lord's sake, 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Both were writing when Nero was emperor in Rome. Nero would light up his garden parties at night with dead Christians. And both Peter and Paul are saying, Christians, all authority has been, it, it comes from God, is put in place by God. First, uh, First Timothy, Jesus, uh, Paul says, you know, we're to pray for those in governing authority over us. Both Paul in Romans 13 and, and Peter in 1 Peter says we're to submit to those in governing authority over us. Now, there are qualifications to that. And I don't have time to unpack them, but it's just a simple phrase. Whenever someone in authority over you requires you to do that which God forbids or forbids you to do that which God requires, you are to honor God and not the person in authority. That's an important distinction. That's true whether it's a governing authority, whether it's a church leader, whether it's a parent. Whenever someone in authority over you is requiring you to do that which God forbids in his word, or forbidding you to do that which God commands, requires in his word, you honor God and go against authority. Other than circumstances like that, we recognize that authority is put in place by God and to submit to the authority, even authority that is anti-Christian, out of reverence for Christ, is what we are called to do. So what does that mean when it comes to the right and the left in America? We may align with one party or another. It's your call. But none of us can be beholden to one party or another. Our allegiance is to the one true king and his kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. If Jesus is not altogether on the side of the left and not altogether on the side of the right, then Christians from both sides must ensure that their highest priority is to be altogether on the side of Jesus. We have only one king. We long for only one kingdom, the kingdom of God. What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is a king who went to a cross. Jesus is a king who willingly wore a crown of thorns. Jesus is a king who wasn't hungry for power, but willingly set it aside. Jesus was a king who opened not his mouth when reviled. Jesus is a king who welcomes the weak and the least, and who promises that the last shall be first. Jesus is a king whose kingdom is above all earthly kingdoms and has no end. If you are part of Christ's kingdom, if you worship, love, and serve the one true king, it must 
change the way you think about every earthly kingdom, about any political party. So by God's grace, may we live as those who are all together on the side of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this portion of your word, for preserving it for us down to this very day. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way in which you teach us, and we thank you for the way in which your teaching is unfolded for us throughout the pages of Scripture. That we pray that you would help us to live faithfully as kingdom people in this age, with our first and highest allegiance to you, Lord Jesus, our King. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.